You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to the show. Today's chat is with Dane Hance, perhaps better known as Vulcan Surfboards. If you live in San Diego or are on Instagram, you've definitely seen Dane's boards. The board designs and materials look really futuristic, and the resin work, the color palettes, the actual laminations are truly world class. Dane was featured in episode 177 of Surf Splendor, published on July 27th, 2017. And I was actually just looking back at that episode, um, and in the show notes, I referred to Dane as a, quote, dichotomy, creative and regimented, thick-skinned and sensitive. His board designs are whimsical in concept and yet precisely engineered. His old-school work ethic and stringent business practices have developed a core following of loyalists, while his embrace of technology, social media, and photography has exposed Vulcan to a worldwide audience, end quote. And after editing today's episode, that synopsis of Dane feels more true now even than it was two and a half years ago when that episode was first published. And in today's chat... Dane is joined by his co-combatant, Christine Kunicki, who helps provide some background insights and context for us to better appreciate Dane's personal and professional life. This conversation is kind of a continuation of a few ongoing chats that we've been having here on the podcast, and it might have really been kickstarted with Maurice Cole opening up about his lifelong struggle with depression, identity, and acceptance. And then that was continued with Sal Masekela recently, who was discussing the loss of his father and how that's affected his own mental health and what he's done to cope with it. And then I've had this kind of peripheral conversation with Dane about mental health over the years and the importance of an open discussion and kind of destigmatizing challenges that we all face to varying degrees. And then after that, Dane began posting on Instagram about suicide prevention awareness, and specifically, he was raffling off a surfboard and donating the proceeds to support that cause. So kind of it all came to a head, and I reached out to Dane and asked if he'd be willing to have a conversation on air about some of this stuff and about what he's doing precisely with that board and, um, and why he's so passionate about uh, bringing light to suicide awareness and prevention. So the first half of this episode, we're going to be discussing mental health and the work that Dane is doing in that space. And then in the second half of the show, Dane discusses the state of domestic board building, the threat of it being extinguished and the ways that he's positioned Vulcan surfboards for success. He also details the economics of the surfboard. So of that $800 shortboard, how much of the $800 ends up being a paycheck for the board builder themselves, how much of it gets paid out in wages, in taxes, and overhead in California, and it's really pretty illuminating stuff. So I should also note that none of what Dane and I discuss in this episode is medical advice. We are just two guys sharing our stories and reflecting on our own experiences. 
a counseling service actually reached out to me recently in light of a lot of these conversations. So if you do have a need to speak to a professional counselor, I'll give you that information mid-episode. And if suicide is something that you've ever considered or if you're concerned about that with a loved one, I've posted links on Surf Splendor Podcast to suicidepreventionlifeline.org and also to the Anxiety Depression Association of America, Beyond Blue in Australia, and the European Alliance Against Depression. So without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. Here is my chat with one of the great board builders of our time, Dane Hans and Christine Kuniki. Enjoy. No warmth could be much sweeter. No love could be much deeper. No heart could be much weaker than mine. So the NAMI board, as we call it, uh, it was uh, a board that we built uh, to auction for the benefit of the National Alliance on Mental Illness uh, to raise funds for suicide awareness and prevention. Um, that was a tough campaign. It was very taxing. Um, it's, a, it's a very emotionally charged issue. Of course, you know, we have our backstory, but as the campaign unfolded, uh, we had numerous people who reached out to us via email or direct message uh, with very dire stories, um, with either their struggle with mental illness or they were uh, survivors of suicide, uh, like myself. Um, and I'm not talking about my suicide attempt. I'm a, a survivor of a decedent. Actually, multiple family members. Um, so it uh, it it dredged up a lot of um, of, of deep emotions. Um, I feel like uh, fundraising campaigns, in and of themselves, are can be challenging. Uh, but then you add in the element of um, suicide, and uh, it it's tough. It was uh, it was it was really tough, but it was also an overwhelming success. And part of um, the success of the campaign was you know, not just in raising the money, but also encouraging people to talk open, openly and honestly, uh, not just about suicide, but about their emotional state and their state of depression or, you know, where they're at, which is with your podcast with Maurice Cole, the first, you know, the first, uh, there was, it was a two part, Correct. Uh, so the first part was good, but the second part um, I felt was amazing. And I can see how on uh, one hand you would be maybe a little like unsure when somebody is self-disclosing so much very sensitive and, and personal information. Um, you're not really sure how to react because we're just not used to that. And I, I was not used to it either. I, we're both students of like Dale Carnegie and uh, I've read a lot of his work. And one of like his tenants was that you just never complain, you never complain about things. And I'm not, you know, saying that Dale Carnegie is wrong, but I feel a lot of people uh, will never open up about anything negative. Uh, you know, especially when it comes to like their emotional state or things that they're dealing with. And some of the risk factors that for suicide that we learned you know, or, or loss of a job, loss of a career, loss of a loved one, 
uh, chronic pain and illness. And that's something that almost everyone is dealing with at, at some level. So I, I thought that it was very refreshing to hear Maurice Cole um, talk the way that he did because it was very open and very honest, but it also reminded me a lot of my own father. And the thing that I think in, in, in our culture, and I definitely know this about Australia uh, and talking to a lot of friends uh, that are over there, especially men, that, um, you know, if you're, you're a guy, you're just, you know, gut it out. You know, don't talk about it. Don't talk about your feelings. And it's bullshit. Um, really, really the tough guys are the ones that do open up and do talk about it. You can't go the distance, you know, holding it all in. Uh, if you can talk about it, it's almost like a release valve and you don't have to carry the burden of all of these things. And in, in my mind, it's, it's contrary to what most people think that a tough guy really is. A tough guy really talks about his feelings. Mm -hmm. This is my dad. Um, and how Maurice Cole reminded me of my father. He was born in 1930. So he was born right into the middle of uh, the start of the great depression uh, in Kansas. So he was full on grapes of wrath. Um, and he had to leave Kansas. Um, he lost his first wife to polio. As a matter of fact, she came down with polio uh, on their honeymoon. Wow. Uh, after that, uh, he enlisted and went straight to war. All this fucking shit happened before he was 22. Crazy. So it was a gnarly, gnarly, gnarly life. And he was always very open about it. And, you know, my dad would be like, you know, yeah, my, my, this is a horrible situation. My wife got polio and, and she died on her honeymoon. Let's, I feel horrible. Let's go get some ribs and fucking talk about it. You know, or whatever. He's very open, you know. So he was a man, man, but he was not afraid to say uh, how he was really feeling about things. I'm bummed out. I'm sad. I'm depressed. It's tough. Yeah. Well, the suicide specifically is extra sensitive to talk about. It's so sensitive to talk about that when we announced that we were going to be doing this campaign, we lost about a thousand followers. Are you kidding? Yeah. That's Holy how sensitive God. this whole subject is. So it's kind of funny because when you message me uh, about getting together and talking about this subject, I almost wanted to warn you that, you know, on one hand, certainly there's a lot of people that uh, will message in and, you know, they want to talk about it. But I'm telling you, there's way more that don't. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, the reality is it's ugly. It's just ugly. And if maybe if they're on Instagram, you're for your viewers, they're used to seeing pretty colorful things on Instagram and getting little dopamine hits. Yeah. And then they see that and they're just like, Ugh, yeah. don't want that. That's the opposite of what I'm here for. But that's the way that people communicate now. Instagram is the method of communication. So if you have something to share, that's where you want to share it. Obviously. Yeah. And it is. And it's kind of funny because I, I, I have to sort of recount on some of the things that I've said in previous podcasts with you. You know, we, uh, the first time you and I talked, we talked about Instagram and, you know, I, I was, um, I liked the way that Instagram had allowed us to show what we were capable of uh, with Vulcan and it put us at equal footing with all the larger manufacturers on a global scale. And um, that was an excellent tool with getting our name out there and, and what we do. But since then I've seen things change and I, attributed to the way Instagram functions. 
Whereas initially it was showing you a cross section of all the people you follow and what the things they're doing. And it's changed. Whereas now you're seeing, it isn't showing you a chronological uh, display of what everyone's doing. It's showing you like the best of the best. And, you know, I already kind of feel like, and, and you see this too, where you see, a, I call it an unreality of people's lives and their accomplishments and, and what they're doing. And it can be this very plasticized, homogenized view into what they want to show you or what they think, you know, might be popular. And so you start seeing like the most unreal of the most unreal. And if you're really tuned into to social media, and I feel like Instagram is the greatest offender. Um, you can really start to feel like shit about yourself. Totally. This person is going here. They're doing this. You start to realize like I'm sitting here in my shaping bay or in my laminating room, just looking at the world go by and like, what am I doing? And you really start to feel like shit about yourself. And I feel that you have to be aware of that and how it's changed. And uh, I feel that that definitely has contributed to people's emotional state, good and bad. And the truth of it is, is that all of these social platforms, this is a new phenomenon. We don't know the long-term ramifications of constant involvement and constant submersion, how it affects your psyche. In what's your experience with it with the kids or um, well in- the kids is a whole another thing because they're like it's their life you know like the selfies and this and that but um, just the 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 I guess the lies it's just it's not real most right. of the time it's not real like they're putting out this image and like if you know someone and you see their Instagram post and you see it's filtered and it's this and everything's great, but you know them, you know, their life is not that picture, but that's what's out there. Right. And, and I'm, you know, that's really hard for me because I'm not. We're very pragmatic people. Yeah. I'm very, I'm not going to post something that I'm not going to filter my face and, you know, take a picture and say, life is so wonderful. I'm having, you know, the, what is that? Pancakes and balloons for breakfast. Here. Oh, this yeah. is great. Do, do you set limits for the kids access to it? A limited amount of time that they no. can use it or it, it's monitor? really hard. Like, you know, I, with my kids, like I've always told them like, listen, I don't want to be the big policeman of you. Okay. And I realize the more I try and enforce things upon you, the probably the harder it's going to cause you to go in the opposite direction but I will tell you that there's things you can't unsee. Okay. And there's things that you need to be vigilant against in terms of like your own mental health, um, and your own moral code. And so it really is up to you. I can, I can tell you all the things that I've learned, but, uh, it really is up to you to, to be that policeman. I, but I'm not going to be the big policeman of you. Mm. Uh, I know how that works. I had a friend of a friend who's, um, she has a couple of young kids and one of the kids, I want to say he's in third grade, mm. got in trouble at school and he's kind of had a little bit of uh, family chaos. And so he's been acting out a little bit, but his mom found a suicide note from him that he wrote in his own handwriting. Yeah. And obviously is mortified getting into, into therapy and helping um, kind of fix the situation. But we were mortified in that it's crazy now that, younger kids 
or thinking things like that. I don't think that was around when I was young. Not only did I not have those thoughts, I didn't know. Nobody committed suicide. No kids, young kids committed suicide when I, I was a kid. I think they did, though. I think you're just not as, it's just not as um, out there. Okay. Because I had, I, I mean, I experienced those things, and I've had ex- suicide in, you know, in my youth, and people like that, and that kind of hardship. I just don't think, like, it's, I don't know, like you just didn't have as much information as you do now. But I, I do think it was still there, maybe not not to the level, because I know with the numbers, it's definitely much higher. Yeah, there, now, it's, much higher. there's been an alarming increase in the rate of suicides. Uh, in, in some groups, uh, it's as much as 30%, if not more. It's the number two leading cause of death amongst people ages both men and women, uh, 10 to 34 or 35. Um, but yeah, the, the rates of increase are, are staggering. It's much and, more. And so th- that social media thing, I can't help but feel is related to it, there's, is related to oh, those numbers. Yeah, if there's not a correlation, then um, I'll eat your flip-flop. Can you talk about your personal experience? Yeah, so... Um, I had wonderful parents. I was very close with my mother and father, but we had a lot of discord in our family. I have two sisters that uh, struggled with um, both drug and alcohol addiction. And so I spent a lot of time with my cousin, Christopher. And Christopher was 10 years older. And um, he was like the brother that uh, I never had. And we spent a lot of time together. And uh, growing up, he was my big brother. He was my role model and my mentor. And um, you just have a lot of wonderful, wonderful memories of him and, you know, around Malibu and, and growing up together and taking a lot of trips together. And later on, um, Christopher married and he had a daughter, um, so my niece, Paige, and... Um, Christopher was, uh, was very successful. He was a programmer. Uh, he worked for many different companies, uh, PeopleSoft, uh, Hewlett Packard, uh, Enron. He worked, um, he lived in uh, Contra Costa, Northern California. And when his daughter uh, turned six, she came down with leukemia and uh, they did everything they could. Um, and about a year afterwards, she, she passed away. And, um, I can tell you that the death of a child is, is, is devastating. Um, it's devastating to everyone. Um, his marriage fell apart and, uh, on the one year anniversary of Paige's death, Christopher committed suicide. And it was hard because we didn't get a note. I know that he had tried to reach out just before his suicide. Uh, he reached my sister, who was, uh, I think, high or drunk. I never got to talk to him. I never got a message. But, you know, on um, one hand, that's, that's, that's frustrating. But on the other hand, like, you know, I, it's, the man's life was destroyed. Yeah. Completely destroyed. It was hard because it, when it happened... I knew something horrible. There was like a disturbance in the force. I mean, I, I knew something horrible had happened. 
And uh, so when my mom notified me the next day, I was, I was, uh, I was devastated, but I knew something horrible had happened. How did you know? How did I know? Yeah. Like you had, you just sensed it. I knew something, I knew something had happened. I knew something was wrong. Before your mom even called. Yeah. Before. What is that? It's a sense. I have had the same thing with someone very close to me who attempted suicide. I felt like something was wrong. I knew something was wrong. Could you assess that it was with that specific person where the energy was coming from? Yeah, I did. I didn't know. I just knew that something was wrong. Like you woke up in the morning and just felt different or? It felt like something like I was waiting for the other shoe to drop or something was just, was not right. Um, had a, a terrible feeling of um, foreshadowing. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, but when I found out, when it was confirmed, it it was uh, the strangest thing because I really felt like something inside of me physically broke. Um, and uh, it's it's tough. It's tough because it's it's very difficult to uh, as being a survivor of suicide. You know, one thing I've learned about life is, is that whatever you're dealing with, whatever life circumstance you come up against, whether it's getting fired from a job or, you know, making a new, uh, let's say a, a board breaks or something, any kind of circumstance that comes up, it's always really important to decide immediately what it means to you. And the trick of life is you're free to choose whatever you want to believe but I found that life's a hell of a lot easier if you choose to believe things that support you. Okay, well, what do you believe about suicide? What do you believe about the person who you looked up to, who was your role model? Them committing, what does that mean? And I struggled for a long time. Like, you know, if Christopher didn't make it, what the hell chance do I have if he couldn't figure it out, like what, I don't have a, I don't have a ghost of a chance. Mm. It's, um, it's really difficult to assign a positive meaning to it. Yeah. It's almost impossible. There's only one I can think of. And most people are not going to want to hear that. Religion? No. That suicide is the ultimate act of self-control. I decide when this ends. I take control. Yeah. And that's, that's tough. That's, that's, that's a cold one. Um, how long ago was that? This happened in 2012. Okay. In the seven years that you've been ruminating on it and also obviously studying up on it, um, what are preventative measures that friends can take? If you know somebody go in your life is going through something that could potentially end in suicide, yeah, what's the best way to be a friend? Well, one thing in, in terms of risk factors, the ones I had mentioned, loss of a job, career, uh, relationship, chronic illness or suicide. Um, one of the other things that uh, is a definite red flag is you mentioned that you had, uh, you found a note. There was a note that was found. Um, even if that's like a, like a, you know, in their diary or something. It's something you really have to take seriously. And the number one risk factor 
for suicide is a previous suicide attempt. So, you know, you, you really have to take it seriously. And you also, this last year, the World Health Organization had uh, stated that their campaign was 40 seconds of action. They said that every 40 seconds, someone loses their life to suicide. So they asked that this year, you take 40 seconds of action to reach out to people and just find out how it's going. What's happening? You know, how are things? How are you? This is what's happened with me. Let's talk. And a real conversation. And one of the things that I found um, is that you want to be empathetic with people. And, but at a certain point, it becomes important for you to not be a counselor. Because I'm not a therapist. Um, it's important to know what the resources are and get them moving in that direction, finding like the appropriate help, uh, the appropriate counseling, uh, so they can get the help that they need. And so it's it's important to have that conversation with people to find out how they're doing, and know like how best that you can assist them, and um, definitely getting them to an organization that can help them. Uh, the World Health Organization, NAMI, NAMI San Diego has um, lots of great re resources uh, for them that are free. Um, so those are, it's very important. Yeah, it's always been surprising. So quick incidental, in regard to resources and in light of our Maurice Cole episodes and then immediately after our recent episode with Sal Masakela, we were contacted by a resource called betterhelp.com and I was thrilled to be able to partner with these guys and let you know about it. I've benefited from therapy a few times in my life. It was always situational, just going through a period of stress and the catharsis of talking to someone was really huge for me. And beyond the catharsis of just the purge, the process of discussing it gave me clarity and perspective that allowed me to grow from the stress and the trauma. So I think finding the right therapist is super important because you could really pour your heart out into um, that conversation with the therapist and they might just not be a good fit. And you could get turned off from therapy permanently. And I know a lot of people who have just had bad experiences with therapy. The other detail is that therapy can be prohibitively expensive. So BetterHelp does a great job at reducing those barriers of entry. Basically, it's online counseling. You can connect with over 3,000 US licensed therapists. The services available worldwide, the 3,000 therapists are licensed in the US. And you can connect with them through text, chat, phone, video. If you're unhappy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time. Financial aid is also available for those who qualify. This, by the way, is not a crisis line. It is secure, confidential, convenient, professional, licensed professionals. You can find specialists for anything from depression to stress, relationships, sleeping, LGBT matters, grief, family conflicts. It's literally the same thing as professional therapy, but it's in the convenience of your home, on your timeline, and it's more affordable. Plus, we worked out a deal for you to get 10% off with our promo code SURFING, just like all of our surf brand partnerships. 
So access through our portal at betterhelp.com surf and then use our promo code, which is again, the word surf at checkout. It works really simply. They have a questionnaire to help assess your needs and then get you matched with the right counselor. And you can actually be in your first therapy session within 24 hours of going to betterhelp.com surf. Again, I'm proud to be able to partner with these guys. It is a great service and resource. And uh, I hope it helps you or a loved one. So, okay, back to Dane and Christine. Yeah, it's always been surprised. I haven't had anybody in my close circle who's committed suicide, but I, whenever it happens in a public um, or comes out in a public story, I'm always surprised by who it is. Like Robin Williams, Anthony Bourdain, like from the exterior, there weren't any real indicators for those people. And even the dude the security guard on the WSL a couple of years ago. Right. I forget what that guy's name was, right. but um, I'd see him at every single event, you know, and then you hear it and it feels so sudden and unexpected. Yeah. Um, you're right. If you find a note, that's an obvious indicator, but I don't know what other signs necessarily to how, clue into. How would you know if I, if I showed you a picture of Kate Spade? Yeah. If I showed you a picture of Anthony Bourdain, if I showed you a picture of any celebrity, how, how would you know? You would yeah. have no idea unless you really asked and unless they were willing to confide in you right. in an open and honest way. Otherwise, you would probably have no idea. Even the people who were close to them, um, some of them said that they, they were shocked. They were surprised. Yeah. So, yeah, that can be that can be very, that can be tricky. That can be very challenging. Um, what's the correlation or instance of substance usage associated with uh, like obviously alcohol is a depressant. Yeah. I would assume heavy drinking probably is a bad indicator. Yeah, I, I would, I would think so. Um, I really don't know what the, I know that they are risk factors, uh, definitely alcohol and, and drug abuse. Um, I think that, you know, if you're seeing that, uh, you can assume that it would also be a, it could potentially be a risk factor for suicide or definitely depression. Um, I can tell you, like, I, I've struggled with prescription medicines in the past. And, you know, it, it, um, it uh, for me, it was almost using them as like an antidepressant, you know, where I could take um, an opiate and then realize now I, I think I feel like everyone else does. Now I feel like I'm happy, you know, now I feel like I'm, you know, I'm calm. And, um, so, you know, if, if you see that, like I definitely would at the very least uh, recognize that as a sign for at the very least depression. Were you, was depression something that you had been diagnosed with or been struggling with? And was it prescribed for that initially or no. was your introduction to the medication? No, I think I, I uh, mentioned to you, I had, um, actually 20 years ago this year, I, I had my left leg amputated at the knee and surgically reattached. And, um, after, you know, all the surgeries, I had a pretty healthy addiction to opioids. Um, and it's, it's funny because it, it starts to change your, your mind. Whereas, you know, initially you're, you're prescribed these things for, you know, a terrible injury. I had terrible surgeries and they were very invasive. And, uh, after time, your mind changes in a way where you'll say like, well, I've got a toothache, you know, I need a pill, you know, or I've, 
you know, got my back hurts and this guy cut me off in traffic. I need a pill, you know, and, uh, start to really, at least I did. I started to rely on them as, uh, like an antidepressant also, because, uh, like I mentioned, I started to feel, I felt like I felt, would feel like everyone else would feel like real happy. What I've come to realize though, is, is that, and this kind of like reflects back on, on what we were talking about with Instagram is that life is not a perpetual upward cycle of high fives and fuck yes. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. And honestly, a, a good life is just an ordinary life. Um, it's not this perpetual funfair of unreality that you see. And I caution people about getting swept up into that. And it, it even goes beyond Instagram. I, we both just read a book. It was called The Four. And it's about Google, Apple, Microsoft. And Facebook. Yeah. I've come to realize that everything on your smartphone, unless you specifically searched for it, everything that it's showing you is designed to sell you something or move you in a certain direction. And we've never seen anything like that. And it goes beyond that. There's also privacy issues that we're seeing now. And never before has there been such a wholesale investigation of people's lives through a surveillance. And what's I think even more shocking is, is that we've invited this into our lives. Oh yeah. Cause we get free maps and free email. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, and it's not free. The, the point is and that it's not free. free. Like it seems like a fair exchange <laughs> because email is amazing. And Google maps is insanely amazing, mm. but it's the most expensive map. Yeah, exactly. It's the most <laughs> expensive product that we've ever paid for. The thing is, is that I, I feel like in, in, in that statement where everything that you're seeing, unless you searched it out, everything that you're seeing is designed to sell you something or move you in a certain direction. I feel it helps. It, it causes you to engage in that perpetual cycle of, I need this. Yeah. I need to achieve this. I need to like, what is so-and-so doing? I need to like, you know, and I, I feel like you end up in this constant state of like doing and trying to get to a certain level. And there's no amount of, of money or prestige or, uh, achievement that, you know, is going to give you those, those feelings that you're looking for. It's, um, you know, it's, it's so easy. I feel like to miss the life right in front of you. Right. And, and you don't have to achieve anything. Like you have already achieved life. You did it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> don't make yourself miserable trying to achieve these things, all these goals and these achievements. They're always far away. You yeah. know, well, the Buddhist kind of sense of enlightenment is living in the now, mm. you know? And if you're thinking about the future, you have anxiety. If you're thinking about the past, you feel regret or you wish you would have done things differently. Living in the now is kind of the only way to feel Zen mm. to use that terminology. And you're precisely right. This phone portal is a portal to everywhere else other than right here, right now. Exactly. But I think another thought I had in addition to what you're saying about the dangers of giving up privacy is um, the more sensational headlines are the ones that get the clicks. Mm. So 
Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and Instagram's algorithm is if you search on YouTube for, let's say, uh, Make America Great Again, the videos that are going to pop up on the right are going to be more extreme versions of what you searched. It'll be, look at this rally where somebody got run over because, or the same thing with the left. If you say, tell me about Bernie Sanders, you're going to see these super far left videos being advertised to you. If you search for dieting, you're going to see these super extreme diet. So that the direction that they push you is farther into your belief bubble mm -hmm. and you end up living in your own echo chamber mm -hmm. where there aren't any alternative opinions being fed to you. And in, when you're on Facebook, those are the things that are going to pop up in your newsfeed is whatever you searched, just a more extreme version of what you search. And that becomes your reality. And that breeds divisiveness, you know, and not when, when I was growing up, it's not as if all my news that I received was, unbiased by any means, but now it's much more sure. divisive than it ever was before. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think all of that, like you said earlier, we don't know the long-term effects of mental health because of Instagram and staring at your phone. And I think that plays into it as well. There is more divisiveness now than there ever was when I was a kid. You know, I think, I think divisiveness is a symptom. I think depression is a symptom. I think the increased rates of suicide, I feel like these are all symptomatic mm -hmm. of, our, of our usage of these devices. And the more accessibility to the medication to try to quell all of those things that you just said is at record levels too. Right. And I think that the medication, by the way, also creates a distance from reality to where something like suicide feels feasible now or it feels less um, permanent and less real mm -hmm. because I'm so distant from my emotions and my real feelings anyways, Yeah, it becomes more of like, Oh, that's an option now yeah. where it wouldn't have been had I had to face feelings, you know? Yeah. I, I think you're far better off and, uh, and I'm not giving anybody medical advice or, or counseling advice, but I think you're far better off um, realizing that, that life is, um, it's funny. It's such a corny analogy, but life is like a wave. And I'm not going to say like life is like a wave and surf it or ride it or whatever. It's like a cycle. Okay. It's like a, a market or a wavelength. It's a series of highs and lows. And, you know, I, I think that people like to focus on the highs and this is how life should always be and ignore the low. When the truth is, is they're all part of the same phenomenon and like a wave you're going to have a high and it's later on, it's probably going to crash and be followed by a low. Um, I think when you realize that both of those are part of the same phenomenon and you can manage them in a constructive way, you're far better off than trying to paint a picture of your life that is all just, you know, bright and roses because you're not seeing the whole picture. When you see the light and you see the dark, you're seeing a more comprehensive view of the whole you were talking about um, having a reliance on opioids. How did you get off or are you off or did yeah. you go through um, a program or? No, no, I didn't. It was just um, talking to counselors, uh, getting on antidepressants and using them as well as like as traditional counseling and talking 
and talking about the things that, you know, that are on my mind and being aware of uh, my emotional state and realizing that, you know, if I've got things that are flapping in the back of my mind, you know, they, they need to be talked about. Sometimes I, I, uh, I write things down. Uh, I talk about it. We talk, we talk a lot, very open and honest about, uh, my feelings. One of the things you talked about when we were texting about this conversation was, um, you made a reference to staff psychologists for the WSL. Yeah. Do they have, or do they have a staff psychologist or are you saying that there's a need for that? No, there is one. Oh, okay. So, um, during the campaign, uh, we were invited to come down to the NAMI ball. Uh, it was down in San Diego and, uh, it was, uh, their annual gathering. And, uh, we got to meet, um, all of the people who uh, are on their board and the head displayed of the, our board and yeah, displayed the board and uh, met the head of the organization. And uh, it was funny. We actually knew some people. We didn't realize this, but we knew some people that were um, on the board. One is a uh, Hank Bizak's son. Uh, and I was so surprised to see him there, but um, it was great to see Aaron. Um, but I did speak with um, the staff psychologist and um you know, I, I don't want to go into to great detail, but they are doing things in order to um, counsel uh, the surfers. But they're also initiating a campaign to reach out to uh, the ex-pros to see how they're doing, to see how they're acclimating uh, to life off of tour. And I thought that was wonderful. Yeah. Did they explain it all or give you any insight into what kind of issues the pros are dealing with on tour? Yeah. How much is it okay to, to talk I, about? I wouldn't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to, I'm not sure how comfortable I feel about talking about other people's problems, but I will tell you that there's, there's a lot of pressure. Um, it's a very, you know, it's in terms of a, a career track. It, it's, it's a small percentage of success. Uh, yeah. It's a, just a shadow of a shadow. Uh, to imagine any like viable success in terms of like sustaining yourself financially. Um, there's an expiration date on it. Um, and there's a lot of stress that comes with the downside um, of this not panning out or this not paying off. And now what do you do? Well, that's the problem is if you come from entertainment, maybe you get a job as uh on the back end somewhere or making appearances somewhere. If you come from sport, other sports, you can get a job commentating perhaps with surfing. You barely make a living mm. even as the pros. I mean, very only the top percentage of guys are making a million bucks and yeah. girls, everybody else is making enough to get, it's a good living, but only for the years that you're doing it. And then you exit when you're in your early thirties with no skill sets that are transferable right. without a college degree and not enough money to really do anything substantial with. Right. If you're making millions of dollars, then you could figure out some sort of a business moving forward, but they're not making that much money. Right. So that time would arguably be better spent in college or interning somewhere. You Absolutely. Know? So yeah, that is scary. That's grim. Yeah. I, I, it would be very, I think that would be very stressful to live with that kind of uncertainty. Um, so the couple that by the way, with like a modicum of celebrity and access to vice, 
So for those years that you're on tour, chicks are throwing themselves at you. You have drugs and alcohol available to you. You're kind of popular. That doesn't serve you well either for once you get off tour. No. And don't have that. Yeah, exactly. And it it was uh, Maurice Cole uh, referenced that. He said one of the most toxic things that you can do is feed into that, that identity. Yeah. You're a legend. You're amazing. You know? Wow. So yeah, I think that, uh, that there's a lot of peril to that as well. Yeah. Not to pivot too hard, but I want to talk about, um, the state of us board building just a little bit Yeah, because it's been a hot topic for probably two years. I feel like it's died down a little bit. It's less sensational now. Uh Um, but you took over, was it board porn's Instagram six months ago? It was actually, uh, it, it, it started with, um, a site, uh, it was the board builders community. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had asked me to, they actually asked, uh, myself and I think drew Baggett to write a piece about the state of the surf industry. And I've got no shortage of things to say about that. And I took full advantage of my opportunity to express, uh, how I feel about the industry and, and where it's going and what's wrong with it. You and I have talked off air about it. I'll play devil's advocate against you for this point of this conversation, but give me the uh, kind of what's the general outline for the state of a board builder. You're building boards in Oceanside, California. So Southern California. Yes. And um, paying taxes in California. You have employees. Yeah. What does the landscape look like for you? Um, There's basically no inducement whatsoever to manufacture anything in this country, uh, regulations, uh, the licensing, everything is, is creates such a stack deck against you. Now the employee, if that yeah. were not enough, right? Yeah. Now with the, um, the, uh, the new the bill, independent no independent contractors and benefits be, and yeah, workman's comp. And it's, uh, it's, it's, I kind of feel like that's like the final nail in the Kaufman. There is absolutely no inducement to manufacture anything whatsoever. You know, it's really tough to make a living building surfboards in the surf industry. And I feel like if you are still here, like I, I feel like you should get a ribbon or a medal or some <laughs> sort of commendation just by fact that you're, you're still here doing it. Um, it's incredibly difficult. And what's amazing is that the boards that we build in Oceanside, along with all my other fellow board builders in Oceanside, all of the struggles that we're scraping and scrapping and, and, and trying to make a living, we only represent 10% of the 900,000 boards that came into the United States from overseas. 900,000. Yeah, I think it actually is actually more than that. Scott Anderson from CI had sent me uh, the data from the Trade Department, and um, it was staggering how much we've given up. So almost a million boards coming into the U S yeah. And so what we're fighting for represents 10% of that. And it's, 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 and it's impossible to compete. I read an article where, you know, overseas they can come over here, buy scrap bed frames and bicycles and car bumpers, barge it back to their country, melt it down, make a horseshoe, ship it all the way back here and sell it for cheaper than we can make it here. It's, it's, yep. That's insane. Yeah. So a <laughs> couple of, couple of thoughts. Um, you're making, let's say largely short boards. Yes. So 
what's the average price of a shortboard on a rack at a surfboard shop today? Just like a regular white or transparent uh, boy, thruster. I've seen, I've 600 seen, bucks, 700 bucks? Yeah, 600. I've seen, definitely seen mid sevens. Okay. I've seen eights. Yeah. So under eight yeah. is the average for right. sure. And, and that's one thing. I know that you had mentioned one time you, uh, that the overseas manufacturers, um, at least they've had the wherewithal to charge a premium price for their board. They, they could have come They're not in, undercutting the market. Right. They could have just completely cut off, cut us off at the knees. Yeah. Um, but I don't believe they really represent uh, the overall largest share of the market. You know, there's a lot of competition from like the wave storms and the foam boards and the things like that. So from that $800 retail priced average shortboard yeah. on a retail rack, yeah. how much is the board builder seeing of that 800 bucks? Okay, well, um, I'm not asking for your business because your numbers are different. We'll get to that. Yeah. But from that 800, how much goes to the the board builder? Well, I, I will tell you this. Like I know certain guys who, um, and I've said this before, I feel like the, the era of just like the standalone shaper is dead, save for a very select few people. The idea, the romantic notion of the shaper who just shapes the board, hands it off to the glass shop, and then goes off to wherever. I, I feel like that's com that's dead, okay? Um, I feel like if you have any chance of really making any kind of, of money on these, you must be a board builder. Uh, in your hand, you're doing every aspect of construction. You're not just a shaper. You're the laminator. You're setting fins. You're routing. Uh, you're sanding. You're grinding laps. Like, it's the wet work. And it's, it's tough. It's mm -hmm. not, it's a long day. And I can tell you, like, I'm just turned 50 this year and I, I'm, I'm feeling it. They're long, long weeks uh, and long days. Hunched over school. holding tools. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. So uh, let's, I mean, it, now there's guys that I see that are just like the standalone shaper and they drop their shape off at the glass shop. Let's say it's like an epoxy glass job. So you got, uh, let's say it's, uh, you know, what's the cost of like a six, five, a, or a UMB, a six, four UMB. It's at least 400 bucks to get the board, the parts and materials and the sanding. And the, if you're, unless you're doing it, like you said, all by yourself. Right. Right. Yeah. I think we figured it out one time. No, I have a spreadsheet, but that's yeah. basically our numbers. I, I was kind of of a, of a, a really well-known surfboard builder um, in Oceanside that, you know, is the model of like the standalone shaper that drops their board off at the glass shop. I figured that they were making probably 60 bucks a board, a 60 bucks a board. And how many? They have to pay commissions. They have right. to pay the store. They have to pay for all the other part. Yeah. Perfect. So you got to the number that I was going to yeah. work my way towards: sixty bucks a board. Yeah. And what's the average? How many boards are people building a year on average? Oh shoot! Well, that has dropped off. Of this person who I'm speaking of, we used to mill their boards, and I don't know if most people know this. Uh, a lot of people don't. Uh, I've worked behind the scenes in the surf industry, milling boards and designing, scanning for a lot of different labels. And I can tell you that uh, this person used to do between 30 and 40 boards a month. Okay. And that is dwindled so, down to probably <laughs> less than half a dozen. Okay. So let's call it 35 yeah. in the heyday. Yeah. A month. Yeah. Uh, times 60 board yeah. or 60 bucks a board. Right. So that'd be 2,100 bucks a month yeah. in profit. It's incredible, <laughs> huh? Before you pay yeah. taxes. 
Yeah, twenty one hundred bucks a month. In hey, profit. but you can't beat the deductions right <laughs> no. off those board shorts. <laughs> um, okay, so let's say the board that's on the retail rack for the eight hundred dollars. Yeah, what is the board from Asia landing in the U.S. landing for? What's the total cost of the board once it lands here? Yeah, so um, by comparison, what was it? Two hundred bucks, like a hundred. I've heard. And I, I know people from the inside on this situation. I've heard every, everywhere from like from 137 to 240 about. Let's call it an average of 200. Okay. So the, the board is on the rack for $800. Yeah. And the cost presumably is yeah. $200. So there's a lot more margin in yeah. that business model. Yeah. I, I can't even get a board out of the shaping bay, you know, <laughs> for 200 bucks. Okay. I mean, factoring in my time to, sh to, to shape, to scrub out my, my pre-shape, paid for the blank, um, and, uh, you know, for the cut, the cut, cost of the, the cut. Raisin, the re raisin, the resin. Right. Well, no, I'm talking about oh, just getting it before just, it even yeah. gets to the glass, Laminate. before it even gets to the glass, before we've been routed a box, you know, you're, you're talking like what, 60, 65, 70 bucks for the blank, you know, yeah, yeah my, my cost of shaping it, um, the cut. The cut. Yeah, so it's so you can't compete. Okay, so yeah. again, playing the devil's advocate, mm -hmm. consumer says, "I don't care that your costs are high. Like, mm -hmm. I don't mind that this thing's imported." W to you, what's your answer to that? What and, is the difference between the and board? They don't care, and you're not well, going to make. And they're not. You're not going to make them. I'll, I don't care. You can tell me that like they do care, and they're going to argue, and they're going to they're going to tell you like that. I want the soul, and I want the hand yeah. shape. But you know what? The, the truth is, that's bullshit. They don't care anymore. And the idea that through localism or badgering that you're going to flog them into caring, that's bullshit too. It doesn't work. And the younger kids today, they don't care where it comes from. Well, so what's your argument? Why is yours worth the added expense for you and your... There's, there's, there's two... No th well, there's no, there's two things. And, and I'm glad you asked that. Light Drive, I saw this coming and I sent you... Uh, a message one time. Remember when I sent you? It was the very first Tomo, the very first Firewire Tomo that I had seen. Yep. Actually, that anyone had seen. Yep. And it was uh, it was the bamboo veneered Death Star. And right then and there, I knew the landscape was going to change radically. And I knew that if any of us were to have a fighting chance against this oncoming storm that you would have to have something unique. You would have to have something that only you could do that was protected. Um, and I invested into my design of light drive and I, I paid for the patent uh, in order to protect myself against the overseas manufacturers. So I could provide customers something that was unique and something that was proprietary and something that was protected by patent. But I also did it, um, and it almost seems naive at this point, but honestly, I did it for the sake of the American board builder. I had ideas of licensing and I, I have worked with several people and getting light drive on their boards so they could have something too that um, is protected by patent. And you know, in my mind, 
you know, if, if you're going to make any kind of board and you're going to kind of try and compete in any way, like the notion that you're going to build a 6.0, you know, poly thruster is you're, you're sorely mistaken. You, you've got to have something that is unique. And the analogy that I've stated before is that, you know, nobody's going to pay for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Why would you? You can make the thing at home, okay? But now, you know, prime rib, you know, it, it's, it takes special equipment, training, and materials in order to make something premium. And if you want it, you must pay for it. You're going to pay a premium for it. That's the angle I've tried to take. Has it been successful? Not really. <laughs> Not well, really. people like the boards and you're selling the boards, but... I do, that's the thing. And, I, and we don't sell a lot of boards, but I will tell you that the boards we do sell, they do sell for a premium price. Yeah. My short boards are for over a thousand. Yeah. You know, it isn't just an idea. They actually work. The boards are not only lighter, uh, you know, they're 30% stronger than a board with an eighth inch stringer. They're at least 60% stronger than typical stringerless boards. And I've proven this. Uh, as far as I know, I'm the only person that's gone to the trouble and expense to build boards and just to break them to show that I know what I'm saying is, is the truth. I've seen the weight test videos. It's phenomenal. Yeah. They're crazy. It's, it's, it's phenomenal, but it's a, they're unusual boards and surfers are very nostalgic and they're very conservative. I'd like to think that, you know, as, as time goes by, the, the truth is a funny thing and you know, you can, you can bash it, you can discredit it, you can slam it, you can bury it under a rock and pretend it doesn't exist. But in the end, there it is. And I'm hoping that in time people will re realize that and go, wow, this really is something amazing. Um, I actually, I had a dream. It was, it was, it was amazing. I, I had a, a dream one time that it was in the future and there was a person and they had found a Vulcan light drive in the rafters of their house and they had pulled it out and it was dusty and old. And they said, this is one of those boards. This is one of those boards. And I was seeing it from like a third person. And I was so proud, you know, that they knew what it was. <laughs> what is the light drive? It's nature's finest principle of engineering. It's corrugation. Uh, and you see it in all sorts of natural phenomenon from palm fronds to insect wings to seashells. Uh, there is no greater way to add structural integrity to a material without adding more things in. Um, and the boards are light and, and they're strong. But they are very unusual looking. So just along the deck rail line, there's two corrugated kind of dips? Yeah. It's, uh, they're two side-by-side -side channels that make a complete corrugation and a parabolic configuration along the rail on either side of the board. Right. Uh, so it can, be, it can be applied to any design? Yeah. So and we've, we've talked about that uh, in terms of other type of um, not just surf craft, but wakeboards and such. Does it um, eliminate the need for a stringer or do you do some with stringers? We have done some with stringers. And um, I think that that too can be explored. Um, and the, the reason why people say, well, why is a, is a light board so important? I can tell you why it's important in California um, I really believe that, I mean, I, I don't believe in fanciful, um, things like I, I believe in physics. Okay. And 
with light drive, we can make a board that I, I found no way to make a lighter board that is as strong as it is. And lighter boards require less energy to propel on the water. Okay, so if you're talking about Southern California where the waves are weak and mushy, especially as we come into spring and summer, the lighter that the board is, the less energy that it requires to propel it for forward. And that is huge when paddling, especially if, you know, you're, if you're a heavier guy and you're still surfing a short board. As such, they also require uh, less energy in order to maneuver. They require less rider surfer input uh, in order to react. Um, so light drive has been an excellent way to uh, achieve those lower weights while maintaining strength. Uh, cause I've seen plenty of lightweight boards that were basically just throwaways. Uh, that isn't the case here. Back to the American made, uh, question. Yeah. Do you have any suggestion or argument for why a consumer should buy the American made board off the rack for 800 bucks rather than the imported board? Here's the thing. This is honestly what I believe. And this is what's incredible. It's harder now to have a viable surfboard manufacturing business than it's ever been. And yet I believe, actually I don't believe, I know that the most incredible forward-thinking boards are being made by a group of board builders around the world using the most technical, technically advanced materials that we've ever seen. And yet it's, it's still the, the hardest time in history to be successful um, versus like the, the golden age of surfing where, you know, yeah, there was some amazing accomplishments. But if you want my honest opinion, the golden age is right now. There's, there's board builders that are doing amazing things. And I know you know them. You see them on social media and, and it's incredible. Um, I feel like if anyone is going to have a shot at making it, it's something, it's somebody that's bringing something new to the table, something only they can do, something that, you know, speaks towards people's imagination and it, it speaks towards their own authenticity and, and what they've accomplished and what they've, they've made. It's never before has there been such an incredible amalgam of, of shapes and materials. And I really feel like material construction is the, is the final frontier I, for me, I feel like all the shapes have been done and I've been milling and designing and scanning people's shapes from around the world. And I, I, I haven't seen anything new in terms of shape for quite a while. In terms of materials, there's all sorts, there's a whole world of things. Um, so if, if you're going to have a go, you, you got to have something that's unique. You got to have something that only you can do. And, um, and that improves the person's surf experience. Yeah. And if you are in the industry and you're hearing this, like if you want to lend a hand, don't shit on new ideas. Well, that's why I was saying it has to add value or improve the surf experiences because a lot of the materials that we see, they feel novelty. It's like, Oh, it makes it 3% more this or that. And it's like, well, nobody can notice 3%. Right. And it's three times more expensive. Yeah. You know, so there, there is a lot of novelty uh, and I, I have seen that too, but I've also seen a lot of uh, very legitimate things. Yeah, totally. Um, and it's, and it's incredible. And I think it's important for the surf industry. I think for people within the industry to be open to these, these things yeah. and to encourage that. I feel like we've shot ourselves in the foot um, to a large degree. Um, 
as I mentioned, I feel like surfers are very nostalgic and I've seen a lot of nostalgia. We're in a museum right now and that's great, you know, but I feel like when you're too focused on the past, you ignore again, like what's happening right in front of you and you almost take its value away. That detail about there's more interesting things happening shaping wise and it's harder to make a living than ever. The same is true across the surf industry. Like for professional surfers, there's unbelievable talents on tour even in the top 20. They don't have sponsors. Right. There's just not money going around no. anymore, you know? Um, what do you think the solution is for you as a California-based builder? How do you make it for the next decade or two? Well, first off, you know, I feel like we do have an opportunity with the Olympics. I feel like it's going to inspire a new generation of surfer. And I think we have an incredible opportunity in that, you know, we won't be tethered to the ideas of the past. I think it'll be like a new era. I think the wave pools are interesting. I like the idea of potentially shipping boards to markets in the Midwest or elsewhere. Yeah. I think that uh, these are all things that we need to be open to. If I were to speak to the, the surf league, um, I think it's important to help the industry by acknowledging like new constructions and new materials and other board builders and giving them a shot. I think that helps the health of the industry uh, from that perspective. Um, yeah, does that answer your point? Yeah. I mean, have you thought about designing boards specific for the pool and what that would look like and what would the changes be? Um, yeah, I have. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, um, you likely will never see a Vulcan in the Kelly Slater wave pool. I think <laughs> 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 I thought it was really funny that like the, you know, after I parted ways with Archie the very next week, he came in so weird, and in the very next week, he was back on his Patterson at the weight pool. I can tell you that there is not a chance in <laughs> hell that he ever would have been allowed to show up at the weight pool on a Vulcan. There's no way. What's the conflict there? We've talked about that. Listeners haven't heard what the conflict is. Okay. Um, have they? Yeah. No, I, I don't know. You know, I, I talked, about, talked it. about it. I talked about it on air. I talked about it in the, the board builders community. And I'm, I'm the things I'm going to say, it's not an indictment of anybody. I don't want to start a, a torch lighting or a pitchfork, <laughs> but I, I've, yeah, I, I, you know, I've, I worked with Daniel Thompson when he first came over from Australia and uh, when he was getting going. And as I mentioned to you, I saw the very first firewire and I was really inspired by Daniel. Um, there, you know, I was seeing, you know, new things and I was seeing very exciting things and it, they, they worked and I was very inspired. I think because I was helping Daniel with his scans and his designs and modifying them, uh, when we parted ways and I started Vulcan and some of my designs were somewhat inspired by, I, by uh, his, his ideas. Uh, I was vilified uh, for that, um, and publicly or just privately? Oh. No, privately. Okay, you know, privately, people won't, you know, they won't come to you and and, and say it right to your face, but they'll just see to you that you don't get along. Okay, and I really experienced that uh, in a number of different areas. Um, it, it really created a lot of problems for me. 
uh, and Vulcan. Um, and the, it closed a lot of doors. Mm. Okay. And I think it's bullshit because if, uh, and I had tried to reach out to Daniel, uh, as a matter of fact, to say, Hey, listen, there's, I know there's bad blood. I've heard things, you know, at my expense, I'd like to get together, let's have a beer and, and talk about it. Uh, cause I don't want there to be any bad blood that never got me anywhere. Yeah. But it certainly didn't stop anybody from saying uh, things of, of my brand, uh, of my character. Uh, and it's been tough. But did they feel that it was, um, you know, uh, you were using their intellectual property, basically? Was that their argument? I think so, yeah. It's, uh, it's bullshit. As a matter of fact, I went out of my way to stay off of... Uh, Daniel's ideas. And the funny thing is, is like, I feel like Daniel never really had a problem with me until I started having some success with Vulcan. And by the way, the boards that I had success with had nothing to do with planing holes, had nothing to do with planing holes. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, it, uh, it, it impacted us. Was the design that they were trying to protect patented or legally protected? No. Okay. Gotcha. And I always, I always thought it was kind of funny because I had read an article about Daniel in the Surfer's Journal. It was one he had done like a long time ago. And I think he had specifically said he was walking by like a wakeboard shop and had seen like these square wakeboards and was inspired himself by this to incorporate it into his designs. Yeah. And so I thought it was incredibly hypocritical yeah. to indict me for the inspiration that I very vocally acknowledged uh that i received from him right so it was uh it was a really tough lesson the really hard thing that i learned about that is that um i thought if i didn't speak it, it, you know i thought to to come out publicly at the time to engage this was to give it legs and i thought over the long haul if i just you know took the high road and uh would show people through my own positive right action that you know i'm a good person who doesn't pilfer ideas or um, you know, do harm to others in that way that you know, the truth would come out. That was the biggest mistake I ever made. <laughs> Let me tell you right now, if I could go back and give myself advice or anybody else for that matter, if you ever hear something that's spoken against your character, the best thing you can do is address it head on and cards on the table. Yeah. Let's get it out in the open. Let's resolve this. Let's talk about it. If I ever get invited back to the wave pool, if I ever find myself there, I'll ride the Vulcan. <laughs> I'd, oh, oh I'd this is live. I'd appreciate oh, no. that. That really would be something else. I'll get photos too. That would be really something else. There you go. But uh, there are other wave pools, and I've, I've seen uh, some amazing things. Uh, I saw uh, the wave pool in Australia, which I thought had the most organic-looking wave. Yeah. Uh, that I've seen, I was, I think that that is a technology that's evolving. I think that it's going to create opportunities for us as board builders to hopefully be shipping boards to other markets outside of just the West coast and, mm -hmm. and uh, coastal areas. Yeah. So I, I think that that's exciting. Um, yeah. So the solution I was asking, is there a way out of this and can you, uh, see your business surviving and thriving even in the next decade or two? Yeah. Is that, it just, I, one of the things that I'm having to look at is is this is that the nine hundred thousand boards that came into the United States from overseas, you know, the majority of them were, you know, entry level boards or beginning board, the foamy type boards, okay, that got people into the water uh, inexpensively and got them up and, and surfing a wave. I think now is an opportunity to indoctrinate those people um, 
into surfing and the relationship with the surfer and the surfboard shaper. I feel like along the evolution of everyone's surfing career, you're going to need a custom made board. I feel like you're going to have, you're going to need one that's in your dimensions. Uh, if you really want to exercise the full capability of not just your own skill and repertoire, but of that board. And I think now is an opportunity to market to all those people that uh, had the wave storms and such, and now transition them. But it's going to take a new, it's going to take a new type of, of uh, presentation um, in order to bring these people to cross them over. Uh, and I, I think that we can do that. And the thing that I've, I've, I've noticed is that, you know, with, with light drive and with my technology and maybe others have seen this too, is, is that I find that the people that are most inspired by it are the beginner surfers. Interesting. They are very excited about new ideas. They're open to new technology. They're open to like the new board constructions. Um, you get a lot of the older hard boiled guys that, you know, they're, they just, they know what works for them and, um, maybe they're not as open, but I feel like the, the entry level surfers are definitely receptive and they are keen. And, um, for me anyways, it's easy to appeal. Like the boards are sexy looking. You definitely, if there's one thing I can tell you, you know, a Vulcan from a mile away. Oh yeah. Um, and so if I can capture their imagination and I can transition them into a real board to forward their surfing career, I feel like that that is an opportunity, but it's going to cause me to make boards that um, I'm not really used to making. You know, most of my boards are alternative performance uh, and I make the things that I want to make. And it just so happens that I, you know, identify with certain people that maybe they like the things that I make. And yeah. now I'm going to need to look at things that what really suits the people, what supports them in their surfing. So by alternative performance, does that mean alternative design, but high performance? Yes, alternative design, yeah, but high, high performance. performance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I've done a lot of work in that area and I've had a lot of success with designs that I feel are very contrary to the typical notion of uh, what works. I feel like there's a lot of, I feel again, nostalgia affects even that area. It affects surf design. I feel like it uh, affects design principles. I feel like there's a lot of outdated information. I feel like there's a lot of outdated design principles that don't work, especially in California. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. You know, the final question for everybody interviewed. Yeah. What was that? Like what's the, uh, what was the last, was the last movie you saw? What was the last song you listened to? No. What was the last <laughs> surfboard that you wrote? Okay. Oh. So this is really funny. We have, um, <laughs> for listeners who didn't get the question, what was the last surfboard that you wrote? <laughs> the last surfboard I wrote, this is really something uh, amazing. Um, I came out with the Mega Simmons, which is uh, like a, uh, it's a concave bottom, um, like a, a mini Simmons, but larger. Um, and I've incorporated uh, my, uh, my patent, the light drive construction. And I've been, I've had success with this board. Um, they're typically six, six, 21 and a half, uh, two and three quarters to three inches thick. And um, people rave about them. And um, I've, I've surfed a couple. Um, it's enough to know like, oh, they, wow, it works amazing. They paddle phenomenal. Uh, they're very fast down the line. I can exercise my full repertoire of turns on this larger format board. 
And so it's, it's great. It's a win. And I feel like it's a good board for these Wavestorm uh, entry-level surfers that now need to transition into something else that they can have success on uh, and also plays towards uh, their imagination in terms of the construction. But it's, it's not just that. The boards are lighter. And I feel like the lightness combination of light drive with a larger format board is especially important where you can keep the weight down on a high volume board increases your paddle efficiency. Um, the lighter the board is, definitely the more buoyancy there is, the higher you're out of the water, uh, the easier it is to paddle, but also the lower the weight. The less weight you have to propel, the easier it is for you to take off with greater thrust when you're paddling. And it isn't much, but let me tell you, it makes a big difference between rolling off the back of the wave for the sixth time in a row versus tilting the nose down and taking off. So we had a shop on the East Coast that we had sent boards to that didn't pay. And um, what do you do? And Gary Linden had warned me about that. He said, I have boards that are over there. I never got them back. I never got paid. Like, you're just never going to send. Uh, I want to make a special thanks to Brian Wynn. The WRV Wayriding Vehicles. Yeah, so I want to thank Brian Wynn, WRV, for helping to get my boards back. Um, And they patched them up and helped them uh, get back to the factory in Oceanside. And one of those... David Barnes. David Barnes. Thank you, David. Uh, (laughs) It means a hell of a lot. It really does. Uh, Because there were a lot of really good boards that we would have just had to write off. Was this the shop that I was in? I sent you a photo. No, it was not. Oh, okay. No. So one of these boards was a 6.6 Mega Simmons, and they had uh, taken the opportunity to demo the board, which is fine. Um, so it had been used, and I and it's it's a very um, it's a very it's a very splashy looking Vulcan. <laughs> <laughs> They're all pretty splashy, but this one is like really it's over the top. Mega splashy. It's mega splashy, <laughs> and uh, it was so funny because I took it out on a solid. Like it was six to 10 foot day and oh. I showed up on this like board that Square. basically looked my funny looking swizzle stick colored <laughs> mega Simmons <laughs> and was just crushing on this board. And I've had people, I've had customers, they, they messaged in and they say, wow, this board's so amazing. And I've now my, my, I'm progressing and I'm getting so many waves and I'm like, okay, yeah, great. Now let me go back to my, my dragonfly or my five, eight, uh, Mach one or whatever. But I took this board out and I surfed it and I've been on it ever since. And I'm having so much fun to the chagrin of like many other people because I do get a lot of waves and I feel like I almost make myself a nuisance on this thing, but it's really fun. And I can't help but feel that uh, for those entry level surfers that this would be an ideal match to. We're making one for an entry level surfer right now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, but that's a poly with a string. So we do them in, in all constructions, but this one is, is really special um, to be able to like paddle. It's almost like a boat, but it rips. Yeah, it's like so. A, guys coming off of those beginner boards that can kind of only go straight. Yes, this has all of the design characteristic to allow them to expand right. their Turn surfing. In. Right, because I don't want them to. I don't want them to. I think the natural thing is just to step right onto a longboard. Now I'll get a, a real board, uh, but I'm going to get a longboard. Yeah, and, but that isn't the only choice there are other choices and i feel alternative performance can supply them with that that choice that is viable and it isn't just a longboard and they can experience the type of surfing that that i love and i know is exciting and it's challenging and 
you know, being able to have the paddle, paddle ability and the success and still be able to expand your repertoire of turns, I think that's, that's amazing. I feel like there's a difference between just riding a board and actually surfing a wave. And I want to see people surf a wave. Yeah. Epic. Good ending there. Thank you, Dane and Christine. Thanks, David. Awesome. I wish that. Vulcansurf.com is his website where you can order a board. And Dane also designs and makes shaping tools that are really ingeniously engineered and expertly tooled. So if you're a shaper, you probably already know that. But I'll post photos and links to those on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Along with everything else that he and I discussed, you can leave a comment for him at the bottom of the page. Of course, I'll also link to betterhelp.com surf. If you're in need of that resource, you'll save 10% off therapy and counseling by using our promo code, which is the word SURF. Super cool of them. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Dane. You can chime in on it on Instagram, where I'll be sure to post a couple of different threads. That's a great way to kind of take it beyond the podcast and have a more communal, real-time discussion. So you can do that at Surf Splendor, And then, of course, Dane's is at Vulcan Surf. Until next week, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor saying thanks for tuning in as always. We'll be back on Friday with an episode of The Grit. I published an episode with Scott Bass yesterday over on Spit, so make sure to go over and grab that. And then I'll be back here next week with an all-new episode of Surf Splendor. So until then, get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred up. Trying to fix my mind. Still trying to fix my mind.